0: you are listening to conversations at the cohen center a space for intellectual engagement interdisciplinary collaboration and a vibrant graduate community at james madison university Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. I'm Becca. I'm Marina. And today we're interviewing Jenny Sankson, the Director of the Madison Art Collection and the Lisenby Museum here at JMU. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny.
1: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Alrighty, so let's just jump right in. So you are the Director of the Madison Art Collection and Lisenby Museum. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do there?
1: Sure. So JMU has a permanent art collection of about 35,000 objects uh, ranging from prehistoric items to contemporary art. Um, And I am the steward of the collection on campus. So what that means is I get to worry about their care, their preservation, and thinking about ways that we can utilize them on campus. So we put on public exhibitions in the Lisby Museum, which is our public gallery space. And I also engage students in various internships on campus. So they might work on exhibition design, uh, work as a curatorial assistant, uh, try to dive deep onto research on any one object. So we have a lot of opportunities for students to develop real-world museum skills using the Madison Art Collection. And of course, we're a resource for student and faculty scholarship as well.
2: That sounds great. Um, We were wondering how you were initially introduced to your areas of expertise. It sounds like you work with textiles and Japanese art history. Could you talk a little bit about
1: that? Sure. Well, I kind of got down this path when I moved to Japan um, after my undergraduate degree. I wanted an adventure. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for graduate school. So I moved there and thought I was going to come back and do a graduate degree in psychology. And I ended up falling in love with the visual culture over in Japan. spending a lot of time learning about about kimono and tea ceremonies, and that really set me up to want to explore it deeper through graduate studies. So when I came back, I went to Tufts University for my master's and specialized in Asian art history and learned a lot of other things as well. Um, but Asian art has been what I have consistently published in, and it's my first real love. So I very luckily got a post-grad position at the Clark Center for Japanese Art and Culture, which was out in California and is now part of the Minneapolis Institute of Art today. And while I was there, I got to connect with a local collector of Japanese textiles and we kind of bonded over our mutual love of these items. And I worked on an exhibition in two rotations featuring objects from his collection as well as the Clark Center. So that really cemented the love. and. I keep circling back to it, even if I have to be more of a generalist in my current position. Um, We actually just got a really fantastic gift of Japanese textiles to the Madison Art Collection through someone who knew that collector out in California and learned about me being here. So yeah, it's kind of extrapolated into a lot of really cool projects.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing. Mm -hmm.
1: What did you study in undergrad? I studied psychology, and I thought either I was going to go down forensic psychology or um, adolescent psychology, and one could argue that I'm still using that psychology degree today because I get to work with students a lot, but it really set me up to think about how people learn and how people process information, Mm -hmm. which is something I actively use every single day in the museum. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a bizarre life story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's supposed to get even more bizarre. So you are a published author. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us about your Genetics
1: chronicle series? Sure. So gosh, where to start? Um, This is my fun side project. I've always loved to write, and I got an idea into my head about writing a dystopian novel about genetic engineering, as you do, and um, it kind of... Sprung into a short story and then got longer and longer and longer past the point of no return and eventually became a trilogy. Uh, So the plot is focused on a future London after the Third World War when human genetic engineering is rampant and illegal within the city, and it's about the government trying to suppress genetic advancements except where they want it to be, which is in the agency, which is their uh, enforcement bureau. Mm. And one of these enforcers is named Leanne, and she learns that modified humans called mods in the series are going missing and turning up dead all over the city. And so she kind of goes down this rabbit hole to try to search for the killer, and she also ends up hunting for the next step in human genetic mutation called the Titan strain. So that's kind of how it starts. That sounds amazing. <laughs> <It> <laughs> Thank does. you. It's automatically on my TBR list. Oh, that's,
2: that's awesome. I'm currently enrolled in a dystopian feminist literature course. No so this is kind of right <gasps> up our alley. Oh my um, gosh, that's so cool. It sounds... A lot, like, we're doing um, daily dystopias where people bring in news articles about genetic sort of developments and thinking about how this might also hint towards a a dystopian present, maybe. Um, Yeah, I love that. Could you talk a little bit about what inspired this? How did you jump into this?
1: So... A scene kind of came fully formed in my head, and then I just started thinking more and more about it. And I actually was, at some point during the early days of this story, I went to the grocery store and kept seeing, you know, non-GMO labels on everything. And so I thought, huh, that would be really interesting if you could have, you know, GMO and non-GMO humans. You know, what kind of future would that look like if people were able to freely manipulate their genetic structure and have it really be exactly what they wanted it to be? So that was really, you know, how it started was thinking about what is going on with genetic engineering now and thinking about what might happen if it goes terribly wrong in the future.
0: Do you have, like, a love for
1: science fiction in general? Like I do. I yeah. really love sci-fi, though. I was thinking about it, and I actually consume more sci-fi in visual form, like more TV movies. Um, and I tend to read fantasy. I don't know what that says about me. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I just find... The visual components of sci-fi is so fascinating. Yeah. And I'm still learning about it because it's just a huge genre. I mean, you can dive deep into basically mm-hmm. any any subgenre you want and never stop.
0: Have you been able to do anything with it at Lizenby or in your position as the director?
1: No, I'm kind of happily removed from... Uh, intermingling my professional and and personal lives in my current position. Um, Although I did get to take part in the convention of the Museum of Sci-Fi, which is based out of DC. It's called Escape Velocity is the name of this convention. Um, So I participated in a really fun panel discussion on bioengineering and biohacking over the summer. And that was through a connection that I met here on campus. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was really neat. Yeah. Phil (laughs) Frenna is involved with them. And and uh, he pointed me in that direction. It was a blast. Yeah, Ferenna knows everyone. He does in that community. He really does. Yeah, That's and great. and I found that on campus is that there is a lot of sci-fi mm-hmm. consumers and enthusiasts here, be it students or faculty. So yeah, there's definitely a home for it here.
0: How how long do you think your series is going to end up being?
1: So right now it's three books. Um, at least this first arc will be three books. Um, but it does end with the potential for me to go back because I love the characters. I think they're just a blast to write. So I would like to have the possibility of circling back to them eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple other projects that are coming up um, in the near future before that point. So what's your writing process like? Well, I work best when I'm kept to a schedule. Um, I like deadlines and I like having time set aside that I can do this. It's very easy for writing to kind of fall off your schedule if it's sort of the last thing in the day. So I prefer to write first thing in the morning. I actually wake up at five every day and wow. <laughs> I wow. know, I know <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit early, but you know, you get a cup of coffee, you sit down in your favorite chair. Um, got the dog there, i in comfy clothes. Um, I find that actually when my mind is fresh from dreams, that's when everything flows very well. So I'll just have a good solid hour at the beginning of the day to write, um, or to revise as of right now, I'm revising book three. So that, that is the task at hand, but I'll write any chance I get, you know, I, work off of Google Drive so I can write on my phone if I'm stuck in traffic. Um, I've got my laptop that I can access it at any time I need. But yeah, carving out a couple of weekends here and there also really works. Um, And I tend to write from start to finish. I will jot notes to myself about what's coming up next, but I'm not really a huge planner. I guess I'm 50-50 planner and pantser. When it comes down to outlining. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, I'll usually skip to dialogue first and then fill in kind of the the gaps between the dialogue. I love writing dialogue.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like these characters are definitely fascinating in their own world. Um, do you have a dream book that you'd like to write someday, whether it's an extension of the series or maybe just a new series or its own standalone?
1: Yeah. So I mentioned my next project coming up that I need to tackle before, uh, writing more genetics chronicles books. There's actually a book trilogy that I wrote from about the time I was 16 to maybe 24. Mm. Um, it's, way too long. Uh, (laughs) And it's one of those projects that I wrote. I loved it. You know, I shared it with beta readers. They loved it. I finished the whole thing, set it aside, revisited it, and was like, well, 75% of this is crap.
2: So (laughs) I
1: have to go back and completely rework a lot of this. Um, You know, it's just too long for the word count and the genre, um, It's very angsty because I was a teenager when I started it. So I need to clean it up a lot. But I think the stories and the characters are really fun. So I'd love to see that become something that's out in the world. And that does look like it it will be, you know, at least a a three, if not four book project. So I'd love to finish that and just kind of move it along to to not my laptop. Um, (laughs) As far as nonfiction books, I've gotten a chance to write about and explore the textiles of the Ainu, which are the indigenous people of Japan. Oftentimes people don't know that there's... um, an indigenous population that's quite distinct from from the majority of the population in Japan, Um, and their culture is really unique and beautiful. And for the most part, those textiles have been studied as ethnographic tools rather than visual art in their own right. So I've gotten a chance to dabble in that, but I would love to see that morph into a really serious book project um, because I think it's a gap in Japanese textiles right now that I could help fill, and I love doing it. So those are two dream projects that I'll get to eventually.
0: Yeah, wow. So does your work with art and
1: textile history influence your fiction work? Happily, no. They're <laughs> completely separate. For my sanity, that's probably a good thing. Um, although I did notice that my characters tend to visit museums a lot. Oh, oh so uh-huh. there is some crossover. Yeah, <laughs> and actually the... Um, the impetus for talking about what is the Titan strain in the first book is the Farnese um, Titan sculpture, which is a real sculpture um, that in the fictional world of the book has been uh, removed to London following the destruction of Italy. So yeah, it seeps in, but I would say it's subconscious rather than conscious. Sounds like it's very like physical rather than meta. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. It just, it kind of happens that characters tend to be interested in what the author is interested in. So yeah, that's definitely Mm -hmm. uh, the villain is interested in museums. So I don't know what that says about me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So your books have a heavy focus on genetic modification. What stands out to you about that in combination with like today's society and Mm -hmm. what you're looking at in the
1: future? Well, I think that this is definitely a timely topic. I think that humans have always been interested in the pursuit of perfection, you know, whether that was exercise or expanding your mind or um, eradicating disease. And I think that we are learning so much about the human genetic structure right now, um, you know, with the Human Genome Project and all of the spin-off. Uh, research that's come out of that, we're getting to the point where we understand human genetic structure. And I think it's only a matter of time before we'll really be able to manipulate that. I mean, there was a doctor in China very recently who came out and said, I have genetically engineered these twins to be HIV resistant. And he was arrested by the government. And it caused a lot of conversations um, about ethics and human genetic engineering. So I think that these questions are going to continue to arise and if you look to sci fi, writers have been trying to work through the ethics of that for a very, very long time. So I think we'll start to see an overlap between sci fi and um, sci fact in the near future. I like that. Sci yeah. fact. <laughs> mm. Copyright.
2: Mm. Yes. <laughs> well, it sounds like you both work within a genre that's already kind of bursting, but then also are working to fill in gaps in mm-hmm. academia, which mm-hmm. I think is really amazing. No, thank um you. Just for fun, if you could recommend an author or a book, what is your go-to person right now?
1: Uh, Do you have one? That is the hardest question ever. And I actually went into my library today to look at everything and just got overwhelmed. Like, I can't choose just one. It's impossible (laughs) because I love all of them. It's like children. You love them unconditionally in different ways. I would say that the author that I have read every single one of his works, so I will definitely recommend him, is Neil Gaiman.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Just a master mm-hmm. storyteller.
1: <laughs> and, and I love how quirky his characters are. They're just so memorable and so distinct, and their voices are wonderful, and they're creepy and fantastic. So I've read probably every one of his books, and I would definitely recommend to start with Neverwhere, because that's a nice... Soft intro to the world of Neil Gaiman is a little bit shorter. Um, Then go into Anansi Boys to laugh your head off. That is the funniest book I've ever read. And then go to American Gods, and you will just be a lifelong fan because that book is genius. It is gorgeous. And it's one that I've read so many times. I've actually had to replace the book in my possession because I've destroyed it.
0: All the best books are loved. Exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah. You know, the authors always say bring me up a battered copy to sign. That means more than a fresh one. Mm -hmm. And I definitely agree.
0: Gaiman says that a lot, especially about American Gods and Good Omens. Yes. Uh, I love him. He's wonderful. He actually, his um, his story, Snow Glass Apples, yes. got re-released as a graphic novel. Oh,
1: no way. And
0: it's gorgeous. Oh,
1: that thing was terrifying. It is absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. Right? Yeah, it has probably, I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read this <laughs> story, but it probably has the most terrifying way to me to die that I have ever read. Yeah. So, go into it knowing it's a little dark, but it is beautifully written and I'm definitely going to have to check out that graphic novel.
2: We were wondering um, what makes this kind of work interesting to you. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder if maybe influences like, you Neil know, Gaiman and, and mm-hmm. writers like that have sort of gotten you into science fiction when your professional life is maybe not necessarily like leading you that way, but right. you still sort of end up in that.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that the overlap that i see between between work and what i enjoy doing in my downtime is creative expression so working in museums and working with visual art i'm kind of constantly studying what creative expression looks like in that realm and then in all of the writings that i do it's a different type of creative expression but it's still it's still trying to to paint a picture or a new vision of the world around us. So I think that they overlap in that aspect. They're just on opposite ends of the bookstore. Interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Opposite ends
0: of the bookstore. Right. Gosh, you've that. got so many good one-liners. Oh, uh, thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, if I can bottle those for the future, that'll be yeah. great.
0: Are you looking for any, like, any help with any projects at the museum or in the collection right now?
1: Yeah, so we're constantly looking for people to come and learn in our space and contribute their skills to what we're doing. Um, one of the big tasks that we have coming up is we're actually going to take a dark year with the Lizambi Museum, uh, and we're doing that because we need to reaccession the entire collection, all 35,000 objects. Um, we need to <laughs> make, yep, I know, it's going to be quite a task. We're going to want to make sure that all of our numbering is completely accurate, reevaluate our storage situation, make sure that uh, we have increased access to faculty and students to our records and to just a list of everything that we have, possibly uh, moving our records onto an online platform. So it's a year for us to focus on the back of house rather than the front of house. And that is going to be an amazing opportunity for students to get involved, do a lot of object handling, learn a lot about object care and about best practices when it comes to keeping records in a museum space which doesn't quite sound very sexy but I promise you <laughs> it is going to be a really exciting year for us so
0: Archivist projects are always really cool absolutely. That sounds amazing
1: Well and you know you'll get to discover maybe areas of art that you hadn't quite considered and you're going to learn a lot just about the Madison Art Collection so we're going to open up our internship applications for the spring around October Probably well, it is October. Well, it's October first. It it. well, terrifying, terrifying. So probably in two weeks or so, we're going to open up those applications. Yeah. So if students are interested in being involved, please apply. We have a lot of things that we need help with, and we are an interdisciplinary space. So whether you are a WRTC or geology or history or art history, there is a place for you at the Lismey and Madison Art Collection. So apply, learn more, see what you might be able to do. That sounds like so much fun. Sounds it is a good. lot of fun. We have a good time over mm-hmm. there. Yeah,
2: if I wasn't so busy. I, I know. know. <laughs> it's a great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Does the museum do assistantships and things like that with the graduate students? Do they do like independent projects? Or Funny you should
1: say that. We actually have an open position for a GA right now. Um, we desperately need some help this year and next semester. So if that's something that you might be interested in gentle listeners (laughs) um, please reach out because we have a lot of latitude as to what that looks like and if you're interested in art or just gaining archival skills um, and developing what you're doing in your graduate program in a museum setting this might be a really great opportunity for you
0: so, are there any like newer releases for like books or movies or sci-fi television that you would recommend since you say you
1: consume those media so much? Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> if you haven't seen Love, Death & Robots on Netflix, oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing with your life if you're a sci-fi fan? Go and watch it. It is wonderful and weird and gross sometimes, but I have just been watching that on loop that the segment Witness, which is done yeah. by the director of Into the Spider-Verse, I believe.
0: I, yeah, I think
1: so. Uh, just fantastically gorgeous. It is something that I just keep watching again and again and listening to the soundtrack again and again. I think that is hugely inspiring. And I actually like to have it just on in the background when I'm when I'm writing just because I love it. and It gets me really excited. I'm trying to think. Um, oh, I'll give a recommendation of something that I thought was terrible but also really inspiring. Inspiring, okay, oh. Jupiter ascending. That is the best, worst movie ever. I loved it. It was so awful. It was fantastic. And the visuals are gorgeous. The special effects are breathtaking. And it's the most garbage storytelling I've ever seen. It's so bad. I love that Freddie Redmayne uh, won an Oscar the same year that he did this movie. It's just fantastic. Yeah, go watch it. It is a blast and a half. You know, have a glass of wine or five and enjoy it. Is that the, the bees
2: m- recognize their queen. Yes. Is that the movie mm-hmm. with the Channing Tatum? Yes, it
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> he is a dog hybrid. Oh no! And a literal line from that is, he says, "I have more in common with a dog than I have with you, Your Highness." And her her comeback to that is, "I love dogs. I've always loved dogs." Oh, That's no. the romantic dialogue in this, and it's spectacular. I love
0: it. It is so bad. It that is, is good. It's
1: great. Yes. Highly
0: recommended. Yeah, yes. I'm gonna
1: I'm gonna go and rewatch that. Oh man. <laughs> On that
0: note, <laughs> uh, could you let our listeners know where they can find you in your books?
1: Sure. So I'm most active on Twitter at the moment. So I'm at VMSenksen. Uh So that's V-M-S-O-E-N-K-S-E-N. I'm sorry. My last name is like a bad <laughs> scrabble hand. Um, but I'm really active on there. You know, I do book giveaways on occasion and try to really engage with readers on that platform. I'm on Goodreads. Uh, Um, I'm on Instagram, and I also have a website, uh, www.virginiasanxon.com. All one word, nice and easy. Um, And I have links to the website off of Twitter, too.
0: Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jenny.
2: Oh, thank Thank you. This was amazing. It was great to meet you and hear about your stories and your work and just fascinating stuff on opposite ends of the bookstore. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Conversations at the Cohen Center. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at @jmu_cohen_center. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at cohencenter at jmu.edu. Our intro and outro music come from Phase 3 by Zylo Zico. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org.